everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. First, a quote from this week's speaker, Lisa Ferens, as we continue last week's conversation. One of my many rules as a therapist that I teach grad students is in the therapy relationship, somebody has to be grounded and present at all times, and it better be the therapist, because it's often not the client. One of the things that that I, I found come up so often in, in my practice was the, the wish, they wish they don't have to remember this trauma, this rape, this event. They don't mm. want to remember it. They don't want to have it infiltrate their thoughts. That's a great point, and I actually think there's some controversy maybe in our field about that these days because, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of clinicians where, who've come to realize that maybe it's not necessary for, for, the, for the client to remember every aspect. And when we now look at the impact that trauma has on memory, you know, the truth is that so many of the narratives that we get, they're not linear, they're not necessarily chronologically accurate. That's not in any way to imply that, you know, when someone says, my father raped me, I'm, I'm questioning, you know, the veracity of that. But this idea that the client has to remember every aspect of what happened, there's a lot of us who are like learning, frankly, from our clients that they can still move forward with their healing. They can talk in more generalized terms. Sometimes I'll invite my clients to just give me the title of the narrative or the table of contents of the narrative without going into the graphic detail of what happened, unless that's something that they want to do. So I think it's important to be able to give our clients option and choice about the extent to which they want to remember. But this is where I also call upon the very incredible work of Milton Erickson, and he was one of the very first people I ever studied in the early 80s with Ericksonian hypnosis. He made this extraordinarily brilliant distinction between participating in a memory versus observing a memory. And that's something that I have used for 33 years that I found incredibly helpful, that many clients, when they get stuck and get overwhelmed in a therapy session, it's because they are participating again in that awful experience of, you know, being physically harmed or or sexually harmed. And when you make that distinction and you let them know this is not about participating again in that experience, but rather actually distancing it a bit and observing it through adult, compassionate, loving eyes, not participating in it through the eyes of the the child you were when you were hurt. I actually think that makes a huge difference in their capacity to talk about the experience and hold the emotional valence of the experience without becoming overwhelmed. So that's, that's something that I've used a lot that I find really helpful to, to make that distinction for wow. them. And the other beauty of, of these thoughts and these uh, understandings is that it, it gives a therapist something to hang on to as well so that you, the therapist isn't feeling panicky uh, 
how can I help this person calm down? I mean, yeah. uh, how can I, how can I ease this pain? Uh, the helplessness and the frustration and frankly, also, I suppose a certain stop it already kind of a, of a feeling. And uh, so these are things <laughs> yeah. that are very, can be very helpful for the therapist. I think you're right. And obviously you're alluding to, I think all of the very normal counter-transferential responses that, you know, when you do this work, there's always that vulnerability to feel those things. I, I would even add to that, that if you yourself as a clinician are a trauma survivor, there's an even greater vulnerability, right, for you to get triggered and to experience some of that counter-transference. I, I have um, a little bit of an advantage, I would say, because I'm not a trauma survivor. And so I, I think there are times when it's just easier for me to hold what's happening in session because, you know, A, I don't take it personally. B, it's not rekindling my any personal narrative in me. Um, of course, you know, the irony is, is that more of the clinicians who gravitate towards working with the trauma are themselves trauma survivors. So um, it's, an import, it's an important thing to talk about. You're right, because I, I think when this does mirror in some way your own personal narrative, there's going to be that greater vulnerability. And um, it could be that as you sit with a client who's, who's sobbing or kind of stuck with something, um, not only will you panic as a therapist, not only will you sort of be racking your brains to figure out how can I help this person, but you might also be triggered around um, not having the same amount of compassion or patience. So I think what can also happen around countertransference is that um, the, the therapist might lose temporarily the, the ability to respond in empathic and, and gentle ways because nobody modeled that for them. And so the stop it, stop it that the therapist is sitting with, you know, could well be a, a reflection of what their caretaker said to them, right, when they were suffering, when they were in that place of, of pain or, or crying. At my institute in Baltimore, where we offer certificate programs in, in trauma treatment, we talk a lot about countertransference because I think it's really important to approach this work with a very clear understanding that you can't fix or change your client. We don't have the power to do that. We can be compassionate witnesses. We can certainly educate and cheerlead and guide and support. But at the end of the day, we have to allow clients to take the journeys that they're taking and and frankly trust that if a client is crying, they need to be client, crying. And um, what I've learned to do that, I, that I, I think does work is rather than make assumptions about what the client needs to be comforted, I ask them. You know, I'll say something like, in this right now, in this moment, how can I be most comforting for you? And I think that's a really good approach because we want the client to start thinking about and to be able to articulate what they need. You know, my instinct when somebody is upset or distressed is to lean in towards them, right? Because I was, com I was comforted a lot as a child. And so for me, that feels good. And that's a natural, normal response. But boy, I've learned over the years that some clients are, are going to get even more activated by me leaning in or spontaneously taking their hand. They, they could experience that as invasive. Um, it could ev evoke a, a startle response in them. And so years ago, I, I kind of stopped imposing that and just started asking, how can I be most comforting to you? And it's so interesting, Barbara, because you get such a range of responses. You get everything from, could you move your chair further away from me? 
because they need right because they just need more space to in order to feel safe. Um, to could you take my hand? Could you sit next to me? Um, just stay right where you are. Could you reassure me that everything's going to be okay? Um, you know, just be silent and let me cry. And so I've I, again I've really learned from my clients that you 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 can't predict what they need for comfort. So I think we have the responsibility to ask, and they have the responsibility to begin to articulate what it is that they need. And when we do that, um, you know, often then they will be comforted and, and then we can calm down. But I'll also tell you in terms of the panic response, I think as a clinician, especially when you're working with trauma, you have to be able to hold dual awareness. And what, that, what I mean by that is not only do you have to be sort of tracking and monitoring the verbal and the nonverbal communication from your client and, and where they're holding emotionally, but you have to always have this awareness about what's going on for you. And you have to sometimes be able to do some quick internal self-talk so that you can get yourself grounded and present. I do have this, one of my many rules as a therapist that I teach grad students is in the therapy relationship, somebody has to be grounded and present at all times and it better be the therapist because it's often not the client, you know? So I think it's important that therapists at times during a difficult session say to themselves, breathe or sit back in your seat. Sometimes I say to myself, Lisa, you don't own this. You know, just stay quiet, just breathe, be present, but you don't own this. This is not yours. This is not yours to fix. You know, make sure I have both feet on the floor to help me be grounded. You know, perhaps if I need to write a note to get myself right back in my prefrontal cortex so that my I'm not hijacked by my limbic system, right? So I think that as therapists, we have to stay mindful of where we are every second in that in that therapy session and that we are really fully present for our clients because we're the, we are the best grounding resource they have for those 50 minutes that they're with us. I'm sort of surprised that a client could say what they would need to comfort them. So that's a great point, and, and you're not wrong. So uh, let me add this, because thank you for that, that I always ask the question. There are some clients, believe it or not, who can articulate it, but when they can't, what I'll then do is offer a whole range of suggestions you know, kind of give them the menu. And, um, you know, I do see. you want me to move my feet further away? Mm-hmm. Do you want me to lean towards you? Do you? You know what I mean? Do you want me to take your hand? Do you need me to be silent? And so when I kind of give them all of those options and I try to cover the full range on that continuum, they're then able to kind of pick one. So you're right. I'm, I'm glad that you pointed that out, that for those who, who are, you know, not in their prefrontal cortex enough to be able to answer that question, I can give them options. And that that seems to do the trick. You know, you're talking about some neurological findings and neurological information. Do you use that a lot? Mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. I do. I think it's such a great way to normalize what happens for our clients, starting with just teaching them about how we're all biologically hardwired to go into fight, flight, or freeze, when we experience perceived threat. Um, I spend a lot of time with that because I think the overwhelming uh, percentage of trauma survivors need to resort to the freeze response, right? They can't, they certainly can't do social engagement and it's often not safe to, to do fight. And they're often, you know, something is happening where somebody's holding them down or God forbid, you know, they're, they're at knife point or gun point. And so Mm -hmm. they, they, they certainly can't do flight. So, so, 
it's so important that clients understand that, that the freeze response, A, is their only viable survival option, and B, was a brilliant life-saving thing to do. What I find a lot is that, unfortunately, trauma survivors tend to equate the freeze response with, I was a coward, or it's a sign of weakness that there's a lot of shaming and a lot of um, sort of beating themselves up around, why didn't I push that person off of me? Why didn't I yell out? Why didn't I fight back? You know, why didn't I do something? Um, and so just to talk in very simplistic terms about, you know, again, how we're wired to do freeze when nothing else is viable, I think is incredibly helpful. I also find it hugely helpful just to make the distinction between what's going on in the prefrontal cortex and, you know, that's where we're doing uh, cause and effect and reasoning and analysis. That's where we hold empathy and compassion versus the limbic system where we're doing fight, flight, freeze. And to let clients know that when they're in their limbic system, there is no insight there. And so the client who says, you know, I froze and then why didn't I do something to help them understand because there's no insight in limbic system. That's just literally about the the need to survive. Um, What that does is it goes a long way towards reducing the shame. So once they have those those basic understandings of the triune brain, um, it comes up in therapy a lot. So I can kind of use that as a shorthand way when I see a client zoning out and I know they're stuck in limbic system. You know, I can ask them a question that I know is going to get them back in their prefrontal cortex. And we talk about that, you know, we got you back in your prefrontal cortex. Or we talk about the optimum window of arousal, right, so that there's, they're in both limbic systems so that they can emote and they're also in prefrontal cortex so that they can do reasoning and analysis. So, yeah, I think the more clients know about that, um, the more we're normalizing their experiences and the more we normalize and the more we help them to be curious and self-compassionate, the more we're moving them away from shame. And that's really, in many ways, kind of my overarching agenda for the work is to alleviate the shame. Just just to go back, you mentioned, so you said the the something brain, was that reptilian brain? Is that what you said? Triune, T-R-I-U-N-E. Thank you. Okay. And this is, don't, don't get me, this is a huge oversimplification, right? But it's, it's sort of dividing the brain into those three fundamental pieces, the prefrontal cortex, which has the highest reasoning, the limbic system, where there's the amygdala, and we do fight, flight, freeze, and the thalamus, and the hippocampus, and then the brainstem, you know, which is the most primitive part of the brain, where we have respiration, and, and the ability to go to the bathroom, and the ability to sleep. So just kind of dividing the brain in this very oversimplified way into those three fundamental components so the client has that very basic understanding, you know, of the different parts of the brain and why they react the way they do in any given situation. I think it's really helpful when we talk about triggering and getting triggered because that's happening in limbic system and brainstem. And we want to normalize for the client that, again, when they get triggered, they're going to do fight, flight, freeze. They're not going to be able to reason their way through being triggered because they're no longer in their prefrontal cortex. And and when you teach clients just very basic, basic things like that, it's amazing how it does alleviate the I'm crazy or there's something weird about me. And it just universalizes, you know, the human condition and how well, we all respond really to threat. That's, that's very great. I, I want to go back to something else you said, too, about the therapist having sure. been or not having been a victim 
or having experienced trauma themselves. I'm not sure that this the addictions therapists still say this anymore in the addictions field, but did you have to have been an addict in order to treat an addict? Do you do you think this is so? Obviously, you don't think it's so, but um, if if the client says to you, "Well, how can you possibly understand my suffering if you haven't suffered yourself?" And by the way, their jealousy of you or their anger at you because you haven't suffered, you know, that that's a, that's a part of it too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of great questions in there. I think that there's definitely people in the addiction field who do still hold to that paradigm that you said that, you know, you have to have lived it in order to be helpful. I do not agree that that's in fact the case. Um, I actually, look, I'll say it like this. I think that there's both strengths and vulnerabilities in being an addict who treats an addict and being a trauma survivor who treats a trauma survivor. Um, I think that there are strengths in it for sure, and I never pretend um, to understand the pain that my clients are in, and I do make that very clear in the beginning. What I do say to them is I've spent my career being a good student, and my clients are my teachers. And so what I do know about trauma and what I do know about the impact that trauma has and the suffering that comes with trauma is not because I have experienced it firsthand. That's not to say that I have a perfect life because far from it. And, you know, we all, we all have all kinds of challenges in our lives, myself included, but I understand the unique suffering about trauma only because I listen carefully and closely to the narratives, and I witness the pain that thousands of my clients show me. So um, I never pretend to know something that I don't know or to feel something that I don't feel, but I do try to reassure them that I understand the work because I've allowed myself to have a very open mind and a very open heart, and I continue to learn from my clients. And when a client says to me, you know, you couldn't possibly know what it's like to be raped by your father. I will say, you're right. So teach me. Help me to understand what it was like for you. Because the truth is, even if, God forbid, I did experience that firsthand, what I also know is that my experience with that trauma might not be the same as your experience with that trauma. And I think it, it leads to a very important piece of the work, which is understanding that oftentimes it's not so much the trauma, it's the meaning that our clients attach to their trauma. And that's a very unique and individualized thing. So that's really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the meaning that you attach to what happened and what was done. Do you personalize it? Do you believe it was your fault? Do you think there was something you could have done to stop it? Do you understand there was nothing you could have done to stop it? Do you understand, you know, that, that this is a part of the generational dynamic of trauma in your family? So what is the meaning that you attach to it? That's what I think matters. As far as clients being jealous of me, I mean, I really appreciate your bringing it up. I'm going to be dead honest with you. I've never encountered that in 33 years. What I, what I have encountered and what I kind of hold on to and use is that I can be a role model for my clients that it is possible to love yourself. It is possible to talk to yourself with kindness and compassion. It is possible to be a loving and good parent and partner. Um, 
It's possible to choose a career and a workplace environment that you love, that is supportive, that is validating, um, that lets you be your most creative self. I really think that that's what I model for people. And because I've worked so hard to establish a safe and loving and trusting therapeutic relationship, I mean, if there's jealousy in their head, it's possible, but it doesn't come out in the therapy. Yeah, so that so yeah. that if they say, "Well, this hasn't happened to you," you know, you can't possibly understand. You, this hasn't happened to yeah. you. Yeah, that's right. And I say, "You're right. I couldn't." So teach me, help me to understand. You know what that was like for you, and know that I'll do everything in my power to to be a compassionate witness. Like because ultimately, really, as therapists, that's what we have to offer. Right is to be compassionate witnesses and, again, to do the psychoeducation and to give, I think, our clients tools for, for affect regulation, for comfort, to allow the therapeutic relationship to be a reparative experience for secure attachment. And I think that's what we have to offer. And I, I really think that even if the therapist who's treating the client has the same narrative, it's still not the same experience because of all the subjective meaning that each of those two people have attached to the experience. So I actually think it's a bit of a mistake to, to assume that if you've had the same you know, trauma story as your client, that there, that means you automatically understand and know what that client is feeling. Because there's a uniqueness, although there's a universality to trauma and the residue of trauma, it's just as important to say that every story is unique. And the reaction to the, that story, you know, cognitively, somatically, emotionally, psychologically, it's unique because it's going through the filter of that individual person. We're in the middle of an interview with Lisa Ferens, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. So I, I, I would warn the therapists who, who are trauma survivors or the recovering addict who's now working with addicts, you know, to not assume that you fully understand or know what that other, what your client is feeling or experiencing. I really think that you still have to stay very open-minded, ask a whole bunch of questions, put aside your trauma experience, your narrative, and focus on the client's narrative. Because frankly, that's all that matters. They're living their life from their narrative and the meaning they've attached to their narrative. In your book... You cover a lot of different beliefs that a person can come in with. Talk about those in, in your book. And I think these are, it's important to, for a therapist to have these ideas in mind. For instance, you don't need validation, cooperation, or apologies from someone else. And that's such a common phenomenon, and again, such a normal one. It makes all the sense in the world. But unfortunately, when you hold on this, to this idea that I need my abuser to own what he or she did, I need them to apologize, I need them to understand the impact that their actions had on me. I think that when people operate from that core belief, they're actually continuing to turn their power over to that abuser. And sadly, the reality is that I, I think overwhelmingly more abusers are not going to own what they did, apologize, right, or have empathy or understanding for 
you know, the god-awful impact that it's had on the client. And so if the client holds on to that, and I've worked with clients who've held on to that to 40, 50 years of their life, um, they've put a glass ring on the extent to which they believe they can heal. They've continued to turn their power over to their abuser. And the whole point of, you know, finding your ruby slippers, you, you, I, I, I know you realize that the title of the book comes from The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy spends the whole movie thinking that the wizard has the answer, right? The wizard is going to get her back home. And in that beautiful metaphoric moment in the end, when she first discovers that the wizard is just a short guy behind a curtain and he has no power at all, but then Glinda comes down and she says to Dorothy, look at your own feet. You've been wearing the ruby slippers all along. And it's that exact same idea that plays out with this cognition that you just pointed out, that your ability to heal and be freed up from your trauma, your perpetrator is not wearing your ruby slippers. You're wearing your ruby slippers. And really, I believe everything that you need to heal is inside of you. So the work is not about, you know, hoping, wishing, praying, cajoling your abuser into owning what they did. It's it's the work that you're doing in your own head about understanding that it wasn't your fault and you couldn't have prevented it and there was nothing that you did to evoke it and that that doesn't have to define who you are for the rest of your life. That's where I think the healing happens. And that's a big breakthrough when a client can get to that place of realizing that I don't need my abuser to apologize, to heal. In that moment, it's like the abuser loses all of their power and the survivor reclaims all of their power. So it's a very profound moment, you know, in therapy when when they have, they can not just have the realization cognitively, but really feel it and believe it emotionally too. Do you think the client has to forgive their accuser or their perpetrator? No, I don't. I actually don't. Um, Yeah, listen, there's a lot of clinicians out there who still hold to the idea that they do. And I'm I'm answering that question again just based on what my clients have taught me. I've watched a lot of clients do beautiful healing work, move on with their lives, and have made the decision to um, not forgive their, their abuser. And frankly, what was done to them is so horrific that I totally get it. I understand. You know, there, I've worked with people who say, what she did to me is unforgivable. I'm not going to let it take up headspace anymore. I'm going to move on with my life. But for the record, what they did was unforgivable. And then I've had other clients who had equally horrendous stuff done to them who, for lots of reasons, sometimes spiritual, will say, um, I choose to forgive. I will never forget, but I choose to forgive. So what I have learned, Barbara, is that the whole process of forgiving is very personal and that it's not something that the therapist should ever impose upon their client. That much I believe. So I just go where the client wants to go with it, and I never suggest that they can't heal unless they forgive. Because I've watched plenty of people do that. So it's wherever they want to go with with the relationship with the abuser and, you know, where they want to contain it, where they want to put it, how they want to think and feel about it. Another thing that uh, you say in, the, in, in, in another section of the book, you say, uh, live in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and that... Um, when you're not in the present moment, you're 
sort of stuck in the past and it connects you to a sense of regret and uh, guilt about things you've done or loss, how do you help people stay in the present? And that also helps the not, the flashbacks, the not being constantly mm. thinking about what happened to them. They're, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You know, I think that for most, not all, but for I'll say for many, for many trauma survivors, um, they're either stuck in the past, which I think can really fuel depression, um, or they're they're very future oriented, which can evoke anxiety because they're what ifing all the time. And if you're either stuck in the past or you're what ifing and worried about the future, you are allowing the present to pass you by. I think what lives in the present are opportunities for gratitude, they're opportunities for connection, they're opportunities to accurately assess what your present um, resources are, what your present power is. And so I do help people many times in a therapy session when I hear them kind of going back to the past or what ifing about the future to again just pause the work. And I think one of the best ways actually to get people back in the present is to reconnect them to their bodies and to body sensation. So I'll often say, you know, right now, let's just take a breath. And as you do that, put your hand on your chest and just notice what it feels like to breathe in and notice what it feels like to breathe out. And see if you can just describe that sensation. So I think breath is a great anchor back into the present moment. Or um, if they're starting to go into flashback, then I'll do an Ericksonian strategy where I'll say, "Tell me five things that you see in the room right loud um, in the room right now. Name them out loud. Tell me five things that you hear, you know, right now in the room, and name them out loud. And tell me five things that you experience on your body, and name them out loud." Um, Erickson called that five, four, three, two, one. He would have them do five of each, four of each, three of each, two of each, and one of each. And what I don't know if he realized that he was doing that was so brilliant was really he was getting them back into their prefrontal cortex because that's a, a question. What do you see in the room right now that requires reasoning and analysis? And so that moves people out of limbic system and back into their prefrontal cortex. So I want people to be in the present moment as much as they can. That's not to say that we're not talking about the past because I'll do that as much as they want to. But I want to try to empower my clients every single session. And in order to do that, they have to have an awareness of their present state of being and their present power because if not, they tend to look at life through the lens of being a child. And with that means that they feel helpless and disempowered and, and victimized. And so they don't act on, um, you know, proactively the things that they actually could be doing as grown-ups, so they could be safer, so they could make choices that empower them. So that's why I think it's so important to be in the present. What, why is the saying it out loud important? When you say it out loud, it, it, it again, it turns the prefrontal cortex on in a very big way and it grounds them. And hearing their own voice can be grounding too. And so that can add to the experience of kind of reconnecting to now and the present moment. And they feel real. So, they're, they're yeah, real. yeah, good. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that can move people out of flashback pretty quickly. I think it's a very exciting time to be in the world of trauma treatment. 
because with everything that we're learning about the brain, um, we're learning that what works is to bring in those right brain modalities. And so the more we can be educated about that, I think the more effective we can be in our sessions with our clients. Yes, what do you see as the future uh, trauma Mm. treatment? So I'll tell you the good stuff and I'll tell you the stuff that worries me, Barbara. Okay. The good stuff is I think that more and more clinicians are understanding the absolute necessity of working with the body, working visually. Bessel van der Kolk taught us in 2004 trauma is not stored in the languaging part of the brain and that simply doing talk therapy is just not cutting it anymore. And so I'm very excited that more and more clinicians really are embracing modalities that bring in the body and bring in art therapy techniques and santre and music and moving. So that's That thrills me, and I think that we're going to see more of that. What doesn't thrill me is that I think that we're moving more and more in the direction of telemental health, where stuff that I think should be happening in person, face-to-face, so that I can take your hand if you ask me to, um, is being compromised because more and more clinicians are doing therapy online. They're doing it, um, you know, visually through VC, and they shouldn't be using Skype, by the way, because that's not HIPAA compliant, but they're using it in modalities like Skype. Um, they're even doing whole sessions where they're just texting or emailing. And I, I'm old, and I'm old-fashioned, and I have real grave concerns that that's, in fact, where um, therapy is heading, and I think that it actually is not in the best interest of trauma survivors to be doing stuff online because I think it actually perpetuates the disconnect that they felt in childhood and the aloneness that they felt in childhood. So I'm hoping that there's enough of us out there who've been in the field long enough who can preserve the face-to-face therapy that I think really helps clients to fully heal and gives them that reparative secure attachment that I just don't think you can get online. So that's what worries me about the future of therapy. Karen's, thank you. This has just been super, super interview, and I'm, I just love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. And thank you for the great work that you do. I think you're making a real difference in the world as well. And so I just want to thank you for this wonderful project that you've oh, been great. involved How with. How lovely of you to say that. That was Lisa Ferens, and I'm Barbara Alexander. Here's what's on tap for our next podcast. It's just so amazing that there's so many people who are these severe hoarders. Well, that's right. And, and the, the epidemiological estimates right now range from anywhere from 2 to 6% of the population. And uh, that's really enormous. Uh, when, uh, hoarding was originally thought to be sort of a subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder. But uh, it's clear now that it's, that it's not, that it's something quite different. And if you look at the frequency with which it occurs, obsessive compulsive disorder occurs somewhere between one and two and a half percent of the population. But hoarding looks like it's um, up closer to double that. So don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.